our chapter for today is Hebrews chapter 2. I hope that you have already read the chapter and thought about it carefully for yourself. Um, and if you have, you know that this chapter begins with what will be a regular feature throughout the book of Hebrews. That is a warning. <laughs> we uh, mentioned in the when I introduced this letter yesterday um, that it is addressed to some who were tempted to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism. Uh, and, and so naturally the letter is filled with warnings against that. In fact, the various warnings interspersed throughout the letter comprise one of the most difficult theological features to interpreting this letter for many. We, we see a good example of a warning against apostasy in the opening verses of the chapter for today. So let's take a look um, at it and, and, uh, and other noteworthy items we find in it. Like I said, the chapter opens with a stern exhortation to take the gospel seriously and to take your commitment to Christ seriously because there are serious consequences uh, for walking away from it. The author acknowledges that it is possible to drift away from our profession of faith and asks if that happens, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We'll have more to say as we come to other chapters about the question often raised about the possibility of losing one's salvation, but for now, the force of the warning simply needs to be felt. At the very least, the Bible is very clear that with greater knowledge comes greater accountability. So elsewhere, we read Peter forcefully say things like, in 2 Peter 2.21, it would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. How much more is this true today for those who sit faithfully week after week in preaching, hearing the word of God again and again, who then turn away from it or never let it take root in themselves to begin with? We need to make room in our Christian lives for warnings such as these, for God has preserved them in his word in passages like this for our instruction and our exhortation. But secondly, there's an interesting juxtaposition of phrases in, in verse 8 of this chapter. The author has just quoted from Psalm 8 and found its fulfillment in Jesus, not surprisingly. And the passage from Psalm 8 ends with the phrase, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's, he's, that's quoted in Hebrews 2.8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, you can imagine what these original readers were feeling when they read him say that everything is in subjection to Jesus. Everything is in subjection to Jesus. That's his point of quoting that here. They look around him and see all the persecution Christians are facing. They see all the evil in the world, and they surely wonder how it could possibly be true that everything is in subjection to Jesus even now. It appears that that was precisely what they thought, and the author of Hebrews anticipated that. So in the latter half of verse 8, he says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So he affirms the testimony of Psalm 8. Jesus is sovereignly in control of everything. Nothing is left outside his sovereign rule and reign. But he continues in verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now that's an important point. He doesn't contradict himself. Uh, and in one breath say that he is in control, and the next breath say, well, not yet. He is more articulate than that. He says specifically, 
we do not yet see everything in subjection. We don't see it, but it is. <laughs> it is not as if the day is, is coming when uh, everything will be subject to the will of Jesus. That day is already here. The day is coming when we will see it and the curtain of reality will be pulled back for all to see. So take heart and know that everything is not now uh, as it may appear. Trust the Bible. The appearance where it is lacking will soon catch up. Well, thirdly and finally, uh, there's a great brief summary near the end of the chapter of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. He says that one thing his death and resurrection did was, in verse 14, to destroy the, work, the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, there are two things I'd say preliminarily here. First, it is our own sin that holds the power of death over us. We see that in Romans 5.12. But secondly, there's a second sense in which the devil could be said to hold the power of death because he is always... Uh, standing to accuse us before God. You see that in Job 1 and 2. You say, see it in Zechariah chapter 3. What Jesus has done through his death and resurrection is to absorb the full penalty of sin, that is death, into himself, overcoming and fully defeating it, so that thereby Satan's greatest leverage over us, that is his accusatory power, is now rendered powerless, or as the Bible puts it here, destroyed. <laughs> That's a pretty cool word here in Hebrews chapter 2.